Now we come to the next section. This is the third condition, and this is reject worldliness. This is chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. In this section, John develops the third condition that those who are children of Yahweh reject worldliness. Does not reject the world like you can all go to hell for all I care, but rejects the worldliness, the philosophies, the ideas, the pursuits, the disordered love that the world has for things. John introduced the idea of the Spirit at the end of the previous section, 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, and how his residing in us is a testimony to knowing Yahweh. He uses this idea to transition into the topic of the Spirit's and how to test whether they are from Yahweh. Today spiritual, today, spiritual is such a buzzword and a feel-good idea. Everyone wants to be spiritual, and everyone is following a spiritual idea. It is easy to confuse the transcendental and lofty with what is spiritual. spiritual. Spirituality is something vague, whatever you want it to be. Having some feeling of transcendental, meaning beyond and outside of yourself and creation. For John, however, the spiritual realm is full of deceiving spirits. spirits, And there is only one true spirit rooted in the concrete and objective word of Yahweh. So now he's talking about pursuing the spirit and prayer. How the spirit will transform you and make you more Christ-like in the previous. Be, um, Be obedient. And now he uses that as a transition to say... But there are lots of other spirits out there. And you shouldn't trust them. You shouldn't trust them. And we now live in a society, look, it used to be that everybody, everybody in the Western world had this like Judeo-Christian understanding of the world in the Catholic Church, right? Everybody had this idea that God and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the Son, that kind of stuff, they pursued it. Even if they didn't accept it or they didn't follow it, that was still the dominating thing. And then what happens, two things begin to happen in the, 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 the 1200s of Europe, the Renaissance movement began to happen where they start bringing in some of the mystery religion writings, the ideas of spirits and, and magic and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, there was also this idea that we don't need the spiritual realm at all. By the time we get to the 1700s and to the 1800s with Nietzsche and then Darwin, God becomes dead, right? God is useless. Now, God is dead is way more complicated philosophically by Nietzsche than just God is dead. But... The idea is that God is dead is and we don't need him. He's irrelevant, that kind of an idea. And so what happened is Darwinism completely destroyed him. The whole world, whether they accept it or not, history and politics and everything was still at least centered on this idea of the Trinity. I mean by the whole world, I mean our Western world. With the Enlightenment of the 1700s of Voltaire and then going into Nietzsche and all that kind of stuff, they start to attack God. No reason for God. Man is the measure of all things. <coughs> the will. The whatever we will, whatever we create, that is the measure of all things. Which then opened the door for Darwinism, who basically proved scientifically that we were in a closed system. That's the real heart of the argument, is whether we're in a closed system or an open system. It's not all the scientific proof of whether Darwinism is wrong or not. It's whether we're in a closed system where God cannot intervene or we're in an open system where God is intervening. That's the real heart of it all. And so Darwinism convinced everybody we're in a closed system. And that shut God out completely. The problem is, is that people can't live like that. 
we're made in the image of God, and we do have a God-shaped vacuum in our soul, and we have this desire for the otherly realm. And you can see that with the vast majority of movies that Hollywood produces every single year are obsessed with something spiritual or horror movies or all that kind of stuff, right? This dominates our movie industry and books. And right now, especially in children's books, it's all about magic. It's all about spirits. It's all this stuff. This is what we're obsessed with because we begin to realize that we could not live like that. We have literally cut a big part of our life off from what we are, the spiritual realm. So the reality is we move back to the spiritual realm. But the problem is we killed God in our minds and our philosophies and our politics and that kind of stuff. So we went back to the spiritual realm. We didn't go to a singular sovereign being who created and rules and governs all things. We went back to all the spirits that are out there. And don't, don't think that this was not, this was intentional with the demonic realm. They knew how to guide humanity in a way that we could kill God and then make ourselves self-reliant and so depressed and so needy that we'd be desperate to open the door back to spirituality that we would then end up accepting anything that came through that door. If you starve somebody to death, you can get them to eat whatever you give them. And that's what they did. They killed God and took away our food and our connection. And then we went that way for at least several decades. And then we became so starving. When they opened the door, we were ready to take anything that came in. And that opened the door for Harry Potter and Oprah and spiritualism and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying all those things are evil in itself, but they have introduced a lot of dysfunctional things in our culture. We need to realize that what God is saying now here is, before he said to walk in light means reject the world, the philosophies, the ideas, the ideologies, the pursuits that the world wants to pursue to make you feel happy, safe, secure, accepted, and have a purpose. Now he's shifting and saying, but it also means rejecting the spirits, the false spirits, the other parts of the world, the principalities, the powers, all that kind of stuff. And so this is what he's focusing on. Our goal is not to be spiritual. Our goal is to be rooted in the spirit. And that's what John's going to deal with. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to determine that they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He starts always saying, do not believe anything that just comes in your path and says, I'm from God. And then notice that he equates the false spirits with the false prophets, the false teachers. For him, they are one and the same, because the spirit is then in their mouth is a false spirit in the spiritual realm. Now, this John is rooting you back into the First Testament. So in the First Testament, there were two passages that clearly told us to test God and the spirits. And that's Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Don't get confused. Because Deuteronomy 6 says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus quoted that in the wilderness to the devil. And so we think that we're not allowed to test God. But we are allowed to test God. We're commanded in Deuteronomy 13 to test God. But there's a difference in the way that we do the testing. Because what Deuteronomy 13 is saying, test everything to see if it is from God or not. 
But then Deuteronomy 6 is telling us, once you know it's God, don't test God to see if he's capable or loving enough to be true to his word. And that's a very important distinction to understand. So if, if a voice comes in my head tonight and says, this is God, I want you to pack everything up and move her here, whatever, or I want you to take your daughter and go kill her, right? Abraham, right? Then I'm not to be like, okay, God, you said you're God. I trust you, right? I need to test it. It could be like the cold medicine I'm on, the goat cheese I had last night, what, like, or a demonic spirit coming into my head. Like, right, there's so many things. And so I'm called to test them. But once I know it's God because he passed all the tests, then I am not to test him to see if he's capable or whether he's loving enough to pull it off. And so a good example of this is Gideon. So in chapter 6, God comes to Gideon, and, and, and God says, Mighty warrior, Yahweh is with you. And Gideon's like, this Yahweh? I've heard about this Yahweh. I've heard of all the stories of the things that he did and all the amazing things, but I haven't seen any of that in my life. And we're all being oppressed by the Midianites, and where is he now? So forget this Yahweh. That's his immediate reaction after he said, Who am I? I'm the weakest of my own tribe, right? And so God says to him, says, I am Yahweh, and I am with you. And I want you to go out here, and I want you to conquer the Midianites all by yourself. And at that point, yeah, like, wow, that's a real sweet. That's God going from counting to trigonometry, right? Like, I don't even know you, Yahweh. I want you to go out and defeat them all by yourself. Gideon then says, is it really you? Now, Gideon never uses the word Yahweh, the intimate name. He's, he talks about Yahweh as in a story. I've heard about these things. But when he's talking to Yahweh, he just says, Lord, Master. Because obviously a divine being is coming and talking to him. So he's scared, but he doesn't know. And so he says, is it really you, Yahweh, speaking to me? If it is, accept my sacrifice. And he puts his sacrifice in the altar, and God brings down fire from heaven with the angel literally standing next to it, consumes the whole thing. And the first time ever, Gideon says, Yahweh, and falls on his face on the ground. That's good testing. That was to see if it really is God or not. So when your friend comes to you and says, God told me last night that you're supposed to, test them. If you hear a voice in your head, test it. If you have a feeling in your gut, test it. If a teacher comes and says, God said, test it. It should always be tested to see if it's from God. Now the problem is when we get to chapter 7, then Gideon knows it's God. His army has been, he was supposed to do it all by himself, but he raised an army anyways, which is disobedience. So God said, eh, and he whittled it back down again. And so he says, I'll give you some, but not enough. So then Gideon's now scared of his mind because his army just got cut away by God. And he goes back to just calling him master and sir. No longer is calling him Yahweh anymore. And then he says, are you actually capable of giving me victory, God? Make the fleece wet and the ground dry. That's wrong testing. And then you know he knows it's wrong because he says, now don't be angry with me, but will you do it again? But reverse order this time. He knows what he's doing is wrong. But that testing is wrong because he wants to know if God's capable. So if somebody says, throw your fleece out to God, be like, no! This is what Deuteronomy 13 says. Deuteronomy 13 says that they need to be from God. Meaning that everything they say must line up with the character and the essence and the revelation that we already have of who God is. 
If they say or do anything that contradicts the word that we already have, they're not from God. They're not from God. Now, Deuteronomy 18 tells us that any neighbor, any friend, any family, any prophet that comes in and does not align with it and doesn't give a sign, they're not from God. Because everything the Bible says is they must give a sign. I could say America is going to be destroyed in 20 years, and you're like, okay, but I'm supposed to follow you as a prophet of God for the next 20 years when I don't even know if that's going to happen or not? Well, then I must do something miraculous right now in this moment to prove that I'm really from God. And it must be something that only God can do. I can't be like, your kneecap is going to break tomorrow, and then I pay somebody to hit your knee with a baseball bat, and then you're like, oh my gosh, you were right, it came true. It has to be something that only God can do to defy the laws of physics and nature. Or only he knows this. And so when that prophet says, prove it, so I don't care if it's dear old Martha, who is a spiritual prayer warrior, an incredible godly woman for the last 90 years of her life, and she comes to you and says, God told me last night that you're supposed to. You'd be like, what's the sign, Martha? And if she can't give it to you, you're like, you're wrong, Martha! Okay? <laughs> That's what God's saying in Deuteronomy 18. Now John's coming along and he's going to add new criteria to that. He's not going to change the criteria. Because he's not going to contradict God in the previous revelation. He's going to add to it. And so he says this in verse 2. By this we know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus as Christ, who has come in the flesh, is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard coming now is already in the world. Now we already talked about this. John's kind of already hinted at this. But now the third level of criteria is that they must embrace Christ as God and man. So not only are you to ask them to be in alignment with all the revelation of God throughout all the 66 books of the Bible, not only are they to give you a sign to prove that God was speaking to them or that ask the Spirit to give you a sign, but now they must also confess that Christ is God and and if they can't align with all three of those, they're a false spirit. They're a false prophet. Period. If you don't care about any of that, well, then you're not a believer, and that doesn't matter. But if you're a believer and you truly want to know God, and you really want to know if God's speaking to you or not, then that will matter. That will matter. And that's what this modern-day world doesn't get, is that there are some evil spirits out there. The most popular spiritualism in America right now is the New Age movement and Wicca. And these two deny the reality of evil spirits. They deny that there are things out there coming. I used to remodel apartments after people moved out. And I was remodeling this apartment and I, I redo everything. I did everything except for like repaint the walls and carpeting. We could subcontract that out. And so I was in there like redoing the kitchen floors and the kitchen faucet and all that kind of stuff and redoing some cabinetry work and that kind of stuff. And our painter came in, Ed. And he is our subcontractor painter. And Ed was kind of annoying because, on a human level, because Ed always knew everything and could do everything really well. And every time he talked about things, and Ed always came in to paint before I was done remodeling anything. And so he would come in to paint, and I'm like, I still have to rip the cabinets out and put them back in, which means I'm going to peel some of the paint off when I rip this all out. And I'm going to put it back in, which means I'm going to have to touch up the paint after you came in, which was like, well, it's the point of bringing you in to paint when I have to paint after you. Like, now, I never say anything that to him. The boss did. 
but I didn't, but that's how I felt. And so I remember I was in there with my ear, ed, ear pods in, and I'm kind of listening to a book on audio, and I just felt the Holy Spirit say, take them out and talk to them. And I was like, this is my alone time. I'm in a really good part of this book right now. And so I did. I started talking to him. And he started telling me about all these things he was learning from Oprah and the spiritual realm and all these things. He's like, have you ever read the book called The Secret by Rhonda Byron? And I said, yeah. And he was shocked because he knew I was a Christian and he knew I was a Christian teacher. And so he's like shocked that any Christian had read this horrible, evil, like spiritualism book. And he knew enough to know that like Christians are like hold the cross up to that kind of stuff. And he didn't really. I also taught comparative religion, so I knew all that stuff. So um, he's like, oh, yeah, there's all these spirits out there, and they're leading you and guiding you, and, and they're, they're, they're helping you realize that we're gods as well. We're Christ. We can have Christ consciousness. And that because we're Christ consciousness, we're linked and part of the universe so that whatever we want and whatever we think, the universe will automatically give us. And I was like, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> that's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? And he was like, what? I was like, it's kind of ridiculous, right? I was like, don't you think the world would be a lot different if that was really true? And he says, oh, no. I was like, and I was like, so let me ask you a question. How do you know this is true? Like, I can go to the Bible, and I can go to Christ, and I could spend many, many, many hours right now with you proving to you why this is rooted in history and logic and, and testimonies and that kind of stuff. How do you know that this is true? And he says, well, because these enlightened beings and spirits have told us that this is the way that it works. They've come into the material realm and revealed this to us through different teachers. And, they, and I was like, okay, well, how do you know that they're telling you the truth? How do you know that they're telling you the truth and they're not just conning you? He's like, well, because they're beyond that. They, 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 they used to be us, but they've evolved and they've moved beyond selfishness and lying and deceit and all that kind of stuff. I was like, well, how do you know that that's true? And they're like, well, because they told us. But that was true. That's the way it works. It's like, well, then how do you know that you can trust them in that? And he said, well, because they're, and I did this a couple of times to help them, like, see the circular reasoning. And then he, I think he, the, the light bulb started going off like, oh, because he was, a, he was actually an intelligent guy. I mean, he was kind of annoying and I can do everything better than everybody else, but he was intelligent. And so he, he cycled through this a couple of times and I, and then he started realizing, oh, okay, okay. I was like, okay. Let me ask you another question. Do you believe that there are con artists in this world? There are humans who will literally act like they're your best friends, give you lots of great things, even maybe lots of money just to kind of hook you in and get you hooked in deep, maybe even give you things for free and lots of money, all that kind of stuff, and then they get you hooked and they con you for everything they have, or they use you and manipulate you. It's like, oh, heck, yeah. Like, yeah, what? Anybody, everyone. Is it possible that they exist in the spiritual realm too? And he was like, Oh, I never thought about that before. Now, he didn't convert to Christ right there and in that moment. And I don't know if he ever did because I saw him a few times after that and then I ended up leaving that job and I've never crossed paths with him. But I guarantee you a seed was planted in his thinking. And I don't know what God is going to do with that. And I don't know what he will do with that. But the reality is it was so easy to buy into this feel-good, give-me-what-I-want-to-hear spiritualism that your brain just starts shutting down. And what John is saying is, don't shut your brain down. 
Not only is it important to have fellowship, love, intimacy with other people, not only is it important to be involved in the Holy Spirit, that's very relational, that's very experiential, and that experience is an assurance of your salvation. But don't be an idiot while you go about it. You also must be very intelligent, very wise, very deserving, and very intellectual and rational as you consider where you're going to get your source of information from. Test every spirit. There is a world out there who wants to filter you and sift you and destroy you. I mean, it doesn't care. It doesn't matter how attractive it looks, how beautiful they look. There's a great book called The Beautiful Side of Evil. Johanna Michelson in the 1970s, she bought into this, there's no evil, and she was tormented by demons for a lot of her early life. And the demons then went away and good spirits came in and began to guide, guide her down this Christ consciousness path. And as she got older and realized that this was starting to hurt her life and she found Christ and she accepted Christ, she realized that they played good cop, bad cop on her. That the very demons that came to her the first time were the same demons that came to her the second time. And they scared the crap out of her and horrified her so that when they came to her good and beautiful, the beautiful side of evil, that she would embrace it and say, well, this must be good because they're doing good things for me. And she pursued them. God says it doesn't matter how beautiful they are. It doesn't matter how attractive they are. It doesn't matter how good they make you feel. It doesn't matter what they've done for you. If they can't align with Deuteronomy 13, 18, and 1 John 4, they're not from God. They're not from God. What John is saying is that these false spirits, whether it's a supernatural being or a voice that comes to you, is the same thing as the false teachers, which is the same thing as the Antichrist. This is the main goal of the demonic world is to replace Christ. I become more and more and more convinced that idolatry is not just pursuing something instead of God. It's not just like worshiping cars or sex or drugs or alcohol more than God. I, I think that is idolatrous behavior. Don't get me wrong. But I really truly believe that true idolatry is replacing the God system completely. That not only is there a God who is ruler and sovereign over us, but a God who has given us a law of how the universe works, how we are to function, and how we are to follow that path in order to be right with God, others, creation, and ourselves. And that true idolatry is when we switch that system that God has given us for a whole completely different system. It's not just that you worship sex or drugs or power or fame or entertainment. This is still just stuff. It's that you switch the philosophy or the thinking of Christianity out for something else completely. And no longer are you following the the law of God laid out through his righteousness and then his sacrificial system 
which is governed and regulated by him, but you switch it out for your Democratic Party or your Republican Party or your ideology of whatever ism that you've bought into or whatever institution or group or club that you think has got the answers. And that what begins to happen is that you no longer submit to the Holy Spirit to guide you in things that you don't understand. You automatically surrender your mind and your thinking and will to the ideology or the institution or the political group or the religious group, and you allow them to make decisions for you. You trade it out for that law. That we so seriously have a God-shaped vacuum in our hole in our life that we need to fill it with something that ultimately in the end, we don't even fill it with ourselves. We fill it with some philosophy. That's why I think Ecclesiastes warns us of many books and many philosophies, there is no end. And be careful of them. For the teachings of the Father come from one source. And I, I really think what John is saying here is that the Antichrist is following any human, any institution, any organization, any club, any business that says, I will make you happy. I will make you comfortable. I will fix your problems. Just follow me. And I think really, truly, deep down inside, we don't even follow ourselves. We follow some philosophy. We follow some ideology. And we allow that to think for us. Or we allow that to govern our decisions. Or we think that will give us peace and hope. And then that system says, cars, pursue that. Or entertainment. Or fame. Or power. Sex. Drugs. Alcohol. Whatever. That system tells us what we should have on our mantles in our house. Does that kind of make sense? And I think that was, that's what John's warning against. It's putting something in the place of God. Not just some material object but a whole way of thinking. A whole way of thinking. That's what's more dangerous. It's easy to remove idols. Lots of non-believers overcome alcoholic addictions. Lots of non-believers overcome obsession with materialism. Lots of non-believers overcome drugs. Lots, it's easy to, but all they do is they just switch it out for something else. But it's the same philosophy. The same ideology that's governing them and shaping them. And they're like, okay, I don't want to do drugs anymore. Or I don't want to be an alcoholic, but I'm going to become an overly perfectionist person that tries to control everything. Or I'm going to do, the, or I'm going to pursue now fame or money. Or I'm, or wow, exercising helps me not smoke. Exercising helps me not take a drink. Then they become an addict to exercising. And they didn't just switch out one for idol for another. They still kept the same world philosophy, the same thinking that governed them, and they just went to one room of the house to another room of the house but they're still in the same philosophy the same worldview or they switch the philosophy out completely but it's still not God and that's the real antichrist the real antichrist says I am an entire philosophy of thinking and I will come into your life and I will help you govern and guide and write the laws of your life for you but I'm not Christ and I will bring you hope and fulfillment and happiness and joy. The individual and materialistic things that we're obsessed with, those are just parts of the idolatry. Verse 4, You are from God, little children, and have conquered them. 
because the one who is you, in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, and therefore they speak for the world's perspective, and the world listens to them. But don't worry. This world is not safe. This world is dangerous. This world wants to destroy you, and it might actually kill your body. But greater is he who is in you than the world. Remember, Cain may kill Abel, but Abel's blood cried out from the ground, and God heard, and God gave him justice, and God's going to resurrect Abel. You are conquerors. And this is the point of Revelation. The same author of 1 John is the same author of Revelation. And in Revelation, the seven churches, the seven letters of the seven churches, and all of them, God says, if you run the race, if you stay committed, then I will give you vindication. You will become conquerors. You will overcome the world. Maybe not physically, but you will in your resurrection. You will in your peace. You will in your fellowship. Trust this. No matter how dangerous the world is, no matter how deceptive the, the voices are, you are from God, little children, and you have already conquered them because you have the Holy Spirit in you. And if you're submitting to the Holy Spirit, there's nobody who can deceive you. There's nobody can overcome you. There's no one can take, rob you of your joy and contentment. The only way that your joy and contentment can be robbed is if you give it over to that person. You allow them to have a foothold in your emotions and your mind rather than the Holy Spirit. So every day, every moment, sometimes every minute, dear God, I cannot do this. You and not me. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world's perspective. And the world listens to them. The world will love them. The world will throw everything at their feet and surrender themselves. The world will give up their freedom. The world will give up their power. The world will give up everything they have for this thing because this thing promises them everything and the world believes that. And they, 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 they link with each other because they're both from the world. Yes, I tell my students all the time, one of the most insulting things that you could say to God is, but everybody else is doing it. I want to be like them. Remember? Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20 made it very clear that one day God would give them a king. And this is what the king was supposed to look like. But then when they asked for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God was offended. Because they rejected God. And then they said they wanted a king like all the other nations. And Christ, God, led them out of Egypt to make them unique and distinct. When he brought them to Mount Sinai, he says, I will make you a holy nation. The word holy means unique and unlike anything else. And he told them they were, and then they gave them the law. And everything about the way they dressed, everything about the way they ate, everything that they did was supposed to make them look different and act different and think different than everybody else. So when you say, Mom, but everybody else is doing it, you might as well go up to Christ on the cross and spit in his face. Yes, they're all going to love each other in the world. There's going to be lots of people who are going to buy into that philosophy. And, there's going to be, and a lot of them are going to have a lot of great things as a result of it that you don't have. But you're a conqueror. And when everything in this world is destroyed in the second coming of Jesus Christ, I don't mean the world itself, but the worldliness is destroyed. And everything passes away and fades away and burned up like grass in the field. You will remain forever in Christ. And you will inherit the kingdom of God. That is Revelation, the same author.
They are from the world, and therefore they will speak from the world's perspective, and the world will listen to them. We are from God, and the person who knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit is, and the spirit of deceit. So what John is saying here is that should become less and less attractive to you as time goes on. You should be getting better and better at distinguishing the voice of the world and the voice of the spirit. And the voice of the world should have less and less of a hold, a draw, a pull on you. Because the spirit is getting louder and louder in your life as you walk with it more and more and more and become looking more and like it more and more and more. And eventually, you should just say, no, I don't even see what's attractive about that anymore. One time I did, but now that doesn't even make sense to me. The first test in verses 2 through 3 was that every spirit, every prophet must proclaim that Jesus is God and human. Jesus Christ, human God. The second test is that whether or not one holds the teachings of the apostles. Holds the teachings of the apostles. Verse 6, we already read this, but I'm emphasizing. We are from God, and the person who knows God listens to us. This is not John saying, I'm right, and whatever I say, you should listen, and I can never be wrong. So no matter what I tell you, and no matter how much it changes or contradicts itself, I'm always right. And so the first mark of the believer is the one who believes in Jesus as the God-man. And the second one is everybody who listens to everything I say and never questions it. That's not what John is saying. Now there are some people who accuse John of being very arrogant, very self-righteous here. I'm right and the false teachers are wrong. But what John is saying is us. And what he means is the teachings of the apostles. And what he means is the teachings of the apostles that's in alignment with Jesus, who's in alignment with the Father revealed through the First Testament. Because what he means is that everything that's ever said, when Jesus says, I speak on the Father's behalf, and I do what the Father wants me to do, and I say what the Father wants me to say, and if you'd known the Father, you would know me. And then John says, we proclaim this to you, Jesus, who is the Christ. And so in the greater context of the Gospels, and the greater context of the Apostles, their message is that this is the First Testament, as revealed through the Father, and the Father revealed in the First Testament, this consistent message through 39 books that then Christ comes along and echoes and affirms but roots and deeps in even more and then becomes a greater revelation of that and then us apostles who are chosen by that and amen and confirm that message gospel and then we all came together and unified with all of our different personalities some of us were leftists on the political spectrum. Some of us were rightists. Some of us were jihadists out to kill. The, like, some of us were tax collectors. Like, and we all came and we gave up everything in our life to align with this message. And we all agreed with each other. And we're all preaching the same thing. 
and we all lost everything. And I'm the only one that's left alive. And everybody else has had a brutal death. That message is the, the test. Do they align with that? Do they align with that message? That message. The thread that started in Genesis and was fulfilled and finalized in the Gospels. And that so many different people with different backgrounds and different personalities and different ideologies and different all gave up everything to conform to that and then began to teach it. And that teaching changed the world. It raised people from the dead. It healed people. It changed governments. And it grew like wildfire. And there was nothing about it that fed your sinful, selfish nature. And yet it still grew. They must conform to that. They must conform to that. That's the second test. This current generation that we're in does not want God to whom we are reconciled, but rather a God who is a powerful genie. Most people today do not want a God that they are reconciled to and then become submissive to. They want a God that is a genie that will give them what they want, make them feel good, make them feel comfortable. The idea is that they pay homage to him, this God that they've created, this God that they've accepted. But at the end of the day, they still hold to their freedom and their own personal spirituality. And that God serves them. I'll pay tribute to him. I'll pray to him. I'll, I'll tithe to him. I'll, I'll, or he or she or it or whatever it is. And I can feel really good that I have some higher thing. But ultimately, in I still have power of my life. I still have power to reject this God and walk away whenever I want. They do not want to know the right thing to believe. They want to know if it's practical, if it will make them feel good, if it will give them a spiritual experience that warms the cockles of their heart. However, at the end of the day, if you do not have people who understand the truth and the truthfulness of truth, you will never establish, you will never establish a solid Christian business, churches, countries, because their beliefs will always be shifting under them. But at the end of the day, when you're constantly changing your mind about this God and constantly following your heart, and it goes this way and that way, and we know how quickly our feelings change from moment to moment, let alone day to day. And you, we, we change philosophies and gods and religions like we change clothes in this country. And ultimately, there is, when, 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 when your religion is a buffet, of ideas and principles that you strung together and you feel like eating this or that that day, then there's never any solid ground for you to be built on. And your ground's always shifting under you. It's always moving. There's no stability. And what happens when the things that you believe in are no longer what they used to be? Yeah, you sold out to the Democratic Party or you sold out to the Republican Party and you believe, you believe that if we get that person as our president, that they're going to bring hope. They're going to make us great again. They're going to heal us. They're going to do whatever. But they're not even the same. 
Democratic Party is not what it used to be. The Republican Party is not what it used to be. They don't even like each other half the time on side of it. They can't even agree what they are. And they're constantly shifting. What do you do with that? How can you have any security in your life when that's constantly shifting under you? It feels good in some ways to say, I can do what I want and I can eat whatever makes you feel good in a philosophical way. But in the end, we're seeing that it actually doesn't work because we're more depressed than we ever have been in our country. We're more freaked out about what's going to happen in America than we've ever been, and we're at each other's throats. John is concerned with truth, solid, foundational, unshifting, non-changing truth. He's concerned with the righteous lifestyle of the believer. He also wants them to be aware of whom they are following. He wants them to test leaders and make sure that they are teaching Christ correctly and living a righteous life so their lives may be rooted in a trustworthy, solid foundation. John is not just dogmatically saying, believe this, and if you don't, you're wrong. He's interested in giving you a solid foundation that won't shift under you that won't change, that reality won't eventually begin to contradict its truth that you've bought into, that has been tried and tested over the years, centuries, that has changed the world for the better more than any other religion ever has, that has given people peace and hope, testimonies far more than any other religion has ever produced. And what John is saying is, Experiences are important. Love and fellowship is important. And that is the mark of a true believer. But that doesn't matter if it's not rooted in truth. Because eventually, your definition of love will shift. Eventually, your sense of peace will shift. Eventually, your hope will fall apart. So be careful what voice you listen to. It doesn't matter whether that voice is your gut feeling, a really charismatic human teacher, or a spiritual divine being. Be careful what voice you listen to. Be careful what revelation you adhere to. Be careful what word you root yourself in. Because there's only one foundation that has not crumbled over the centuries. And that is the word of God. And there's only one God that has consistently and universally over and over again changed lives for true peace, hope, and joy than any other God. And that is Jesus Christ, the human God who atones for our sins and then comes and indwells us in a way that no other religion ever does. Does that kind of make sense? Love and truth. Truth and love. That's what John's speaking to.